Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. There we go. There we are. Good evening, everyone. This is Rob Orson with the Emerging Revolutionary War. I'm joined tonight with my good friend, Phil Greenwald. And we're very excited tonight to have Evan O'Brien, who's the creative manager um, at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum there in Boston. As we've been talking about leading up to this talk, we're really going to be focusing on a lot of the 250th events uh, leading up to the Tea Party. Um, and that's going to be a big thing going on this December. I think, Phil, you and I will be up there in December. We might harass Evan when we get up there. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Evan's come, been so gracious to come on with us tonight to kind of talk about a little bit about the history of the Boston Tea Party, um, kind of give an overview of the events that led up to it, talk about the Tea Party itself. And then I really want Evan to kind of focus a lot on what you all are doing up there. There's a lot of events. I'm hoping our, our viewers will really kind of uh, go up there and see some of the great work you all are doing, especially coming up in December. Um, but Evan, if, if we can get started, uh, just kind of give us a little bit of background. I think everyone knows about tossing the tea in the harbor and you know, then they went home and the war started, but that's not exactly what happened. So if you can yeah, give, give exactly. us a little bit that's, of background. Thank you. Yeah, that's not exactly what happened. And you know, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity today, guys, to talk about this important event in American history. Um, the Boston Tea Party, or also known as the destruction of the tea or the incident on Griffin's Wharf, um, was one of the first significant acts of defiance by the American colonists uh, toward the British crown. Uh, leading up to the American Revolution. At the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, of course, we look at the Boston Tea Party as the single most important event leading up to the American Revolution. I suppose that could be debated. A few places like Lexington and Concord might have their say in that conversation, but we look at the Boston Tea Party as kind of the catalyst that began the fall of the dominoes that ultimately led to the American Revolution. In a real nutshell, or a tea chest, I suppose, the Boston Tea Party was an event that involved about 100 and 150 men. Some were disguised, some were not. Matter of fact, a lot of them weren't, um, who boarded three vessels at Griffin's Wharf on December 16th, 1773. 
These men were divided up into about three different boarding parties of about 30 to 50 per vessel. And during three to three and a half hours destroyed 340 chests of East India Company tea. That's the story that we know. Um, but what really led to the Boston Tea Party was a whole series of events that would culminate in the tea's destruction. The American colonists were actually quite frustrated about an East India Company monopoly on the sale of tea. Um, this tax on tea was originally uh, levied against the colonies uh, with the passage of the Townsend Acts in 1767. That would tax home goods like glass, lead, pewter, paint, and most importantly, tea. The repeal of the Townsend Acts would actually happen on the day of the Boston Massacre, uh, but, but Parliament did keep one tax in place to keep up the right, as they would say, and that would be the tax upon tea. And while there was that three pence per pound of tax on tea, it was actually rather paltry. It wasn't very expensive. But ultimately, what the Tea Act of 1773 did was it handed the East India Company a monopoly on the sale of tea. And this is probably the most important aspect of the Boston Tea Party. And the thing to walk away from tonight is that it was mainly about, this event was mainly about a lack of representation in Parliament and this fear that if the British Parliament could hand the East India Company a monopoly on the sale of tea, well, what could they do to other businesses, other trades in the American colonies? So to take matters in their own hands, uh, once these vessels began to arrive in Boston Harbor, beginning with the ship Dartmouth, which arrived on November 28, 1773, a whole series of town meetings and meetings of the body of the people sprang up at Faneuil Hall and the Old South Meeting House. And it was there after a series of about two weeks of meetings that the decision was made that something had to be done with the tea. And of course, uh, all 340 chests would steep a salty brew in the icy waters of Boston Harbor uh, in the evening of December 16th, 1773. You, you like crossed out like three of my questions I had for you. You did a good oh, job there. Well, we can, we can get deeper in there. <laughs> I can, very surface level. So, uh, you, you definitely, I, I like the way you talked about how. Um, you know, a lot of people read about the Tea Party and think that, you know, it's all about the tea, but you made a great point. It's about the taxation, right? It's about, you know, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm from Virginia, so I can't I can't say too much because we're very much like people in Massachusetts. We think we're the best and the smartest. But, you know, they had they had a lot of pride in their independence, so to speak, you know, and, and how their government, their colonial government was set up. And I think, you know, this right of taxation and it really kind of hit them in, in the wrong spot right right <laughs> and that you know and um when you, you start looking into this too you know there's a lot of people in boston including john hancock that are making a lot of money um you know sh in the shipping business some of it's not totally legal but you know uh when you start hitting boston and the, the wallet there i think you you get some people really upset but you know it's about it's about the taxation that's necessarily about the tea but um you know, that's what we everyone thinks it's just about the tea, but it's really about that taxation and establishing that that foundation, right? For like you said, Townsend Acts were re repealed, but they left that one on there just to kind of make that point. <laughs> exactly, and that was frustrating, you know. And there was right. a, an overwhelming concern, you know, about where this money was going. So the income from the tea tax was actually not going back into the local Boston community. It was going to pay the salaries of British or royally appointed people, specifically, um, you know, the royal governor, that sort of thing, but also the consignees. 
So the T tax was not really a tax that was paid by the individual consumer initially. When the tea was supposed to arrive in Boston, it would be taken by wholesalers, also known as consignees. Uh, those consignees were Richard Clark, uh, Jonathan Clark, and Isaac Clark, Joshua Winslow, Benjamin Franiel Jr., and two of Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson's sons, Thomas Hutchinson Jr. and Elijah Hutchinson. So you also sprinkle in some nepotism and the idea that these people who were royally appointed who were not duly elected by the populace of Boston was having a say in this tea tax. And so ideally had the tea been landed and been brought into stores around colonial Boston, that tea tax would actually be first paid upfront by the consignees. And then that tax would have been worked into the sale of the tea and the individual consumers. So there's all this complexity to what is often seen as a very simple event, right? A bunch of people, you know, several hundred guys go down to Griffin's Wharf, they go onto these ships, they smash the tea chests open, they throw it overboard, and they have a big party. Actually, it was, you know, not really like that at all. Yes, uh, you know, several hundred people went down onto the wharfs and destroyed this tea, but it was a well orchestrated event. It was planned, and it was planned because there were two weeks of meetings and two right. weeks, you know, to really figure out what they were going to do with this tea. And they would petition the royal governor multiple times to send it back to England. They would send uh, Francis Roach, the owner of the ship Dartmouth, that first one to arrive, to go before royal governor Thomas Hutchinson multiple times, pleading with him to send the tea back to England and not land it here in Boston. And it was only at the 11th hour, at the expiration of this deadline, that they finally took matters into their own hands to go down to Griffin's Wharf to destroy the tea. I feel bad for Francis Roach a little bit when you read this story. He's kind of stuck in the middle, right? Um, he can't really return the tea. He can't, you know, uh, the Kassani, you know, there's this can't land it, can't return it. You know, he goes to the, he goes to one of the meetings there and, and they ask him to, to just take it back. And it's like, well, it's not that easy. You know, I, I can't actually do that. Um, talk a little bit about, if you could, about that whole, it's very complicated, right? I mean, it's very legal. It's very a lot, lot, lot of legalese there, but it's interesting um, about when that ship arrives, right? And then the timeline they have to do either something, either send it back, take it on, or it's going to be confiscated. So, and you know, he's a businessman, right? I mean, he, you know, he, he, he I, I think, I think he's probably sympathetic a little bit to everything, but he, obviously at the end of the day, he has to make money. So, talk a little bit about that that kind of complexity there of of why that tea can't be landed, why it can't be returned. Right. Yeah, it is very complex. And I do see Francis Roach as a, as a sympathetic character. Um, I don't really believe he was, you know, on the patriot leaning side of things, right. but nevertheless, he tried to do the right thing. And he was completely stuck in the middle. And he was, you know, having these this deadline breathing down his neck that dates all the way back to 1651 with the passage of the Navigation Act. So what the Navigation Acts did is it declared that American colonies could only export certain commodities directly to England. It also effectively prevented American colonies from trading with any other European nations. All vessels clearing in or out of Boston Harbor were also required to be built in Great Britain or her colonies and owned by British subjects. But most importantly for the Boston Tea Party, it stated that a vessel entering the harbor had 20 days to unload that cargo and pay the duties assigned to that cargo. And so when uh, 
The Dartmouth arrived on November 28, 1773. The timeline for the Dartmouth becomes the literal timeline for the Boston Tea Party. From the moment that that vessel entered the harbor, that clock began ticking, and we had 20 days leading up to December 17th to decide the fate of what they called the pernicious weed. So uh, Francis Roach was summoned before the meetings of the body of the people, both at Faneuil Hall and Old South Meeting House. And initially the moderator asked, you know, is it your intention to land the tea? And he would immediately reply, he would rather have no business with it, but he was compelled to do so. You have to keep in mind today, you know, we can send something back via, you know, online shipping. It's really not that hard for us, but this cargo uh, was his lifeblood. That was his, his financial structure, his financial support, his family's financial su support. It just took six to eight weeks to cross the North Atlantic at great risk. It's sitting here in Boston. He needs that cargo to be offloaded uh, for his own financial security. The consignees need that tea to be offloaded for their own financial security, but also their own governmental security. They can't show the general populace that they're weak and unable to, to handle you know, the shipment of cargo. And so one of the things that's always struck me about the Boston Tea Party, it really wasn't a party uh, in, in a fun way. It was one of the most stressful times in Boston's history, you know, leading up to the American Revolution. Everyone had a say, everyone had an opinion as to what to do with this tea. And uh, there's an anecdote that when Francis Roach returned to the final meeting of the body of the people to Old South Meeting House on December 16, 1773, and when finally asked, what did the governor say? Will the governor allow the vessels to be sent back to England? He said, no, that the governor has refused all these requests and the tea must be unloaded as the law demands. And merchant John Andrews, who was living a few blocks away from Old South Meeting House said, that at that exact moment, when Francis Roche delivered the final word from the royal governor, the 5,000 people inside Old South Meeting House were so loud, the building shook with such fervor and emotion, he would write in his diary that it sounded like the creatures from the infernal regions had broken loose. And so you can imagine all of this tension and all of this ire, the entire population of Boston hating on this one man, Francis Roche, who was simply trying to do the best he could for his family, the best he could for his business, and the best he could for his community. And I think, depending on what side you're looking at, you can say that for uh, the Tory and the Loyalist side, you can say that for the Patriot side, and you can even say that for those moderates who are kind of stuck in between. Yeah, and I think most are in, the, in between, right? I mean, we always talk about one side or the other. Um, and I think Phil, you have a question, but real quick, you mentioned Old South Meeting House. I've been there many times. I think of 5,000 people in that space um, is pretty amazing. <laughs> it really I mean, is. It, it's, it doesn't seem it's that crazy. big. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it it's crazy. And, you know, it wasn't heated well. And, you know, it's just, I just can imagine, you know, the, the atmosphere of 18th century, 5,000 people in one space like that. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Right. I think, uh, what is it, OSHA today would have a problem with putting 5,000 people. Yeah, at, uh, fire marshals uh, yeah, well. Fire marshals would. Uh, <laughs> um, so it, just a, a general question that struck me, uh, um, and so I figured I'd, that's a little bit in the weeds. Uh, we do know uh, what are some of the character, or some of the major players are. What happens to the the Roach after um, this? Do we know, is he sail off into history, no pun intended? Does he wreck his business? Um just uh you just uh, just dawned on me you really don't hear about what happens 
that some of the, the ship owners, um, like you do some of the other major players on December 16th? Yeah, sure. So it's actually great. I mean, Francis continues his, his business. Um, and at the end of uh, the meeting of the body of the people, it is actually, there, there's a movement made um, to stand up and actually thank Francis Roach uh, for his attempt uh, to get the governor to send his tea back to England. Um, and also, I believe it's Dr. Thomas Young who stands up and reminds the crowd that he did everything that was asked and no harm should come to him or his family. And I know that Francis Roach was very concerned about that. And one of the first meetings, he actually requested that of the body of the people. If I do this, can you give me some assurances that both myself and my family will be protected and taken care of uh, during this? So the Roach family business continued. Um, they did lose uh, a little bit. Uh, the, the Dartmouth um, did founder uh, following the Boston Tea Party, um, as did the, the other vessel owned by the Roach family, the Beaver, a short time after that. It was actually, it didn't sink, but it was damaged and then sold. Um, so much like any merchant or anyone in the shipping business, ships come and ships go, uh, but their business did continue. And then we do have a random question, or more of a debate going on. Uh, there's a debate here about mud or water. Mud, mud. yeah, mud or water. It's going on <laughs> in the comment section about when they dumped it. Was it tied out? Was it a, did it land in the water? Did it land in, in the mud? So you push it into the mud, into the water. Um, so you want to put this uh, debate at uh, rest, Devin? Yeah, sure. Uh, this one's one of my favorites. So I would, I will take the moderate stance and call it muddy water. There you um, go. Oh, I love so, it. Yeah, uh, there was some water there, but not very much. In some areas where the harbor was, you're talking probably a couple of inches rather than a few feet, because the Boston Tea Party actually took place on an evening of what they referred to as low water, dead low tide, but it was also close to a king's low tide. They might, especially here in Boston, you know, with rising uh, water and all that stuff, we oftentimes get a warning of a king's high tide and certain areas along the harbor walk here will actually flood. The water will come right up over um, and, you know, cause some damage here and there and flood some sidewalks. It was the exact opposite of that on December 16, 1773. The vessels were in such low water, they were actually stuck in the mud in Boston <laughs> Harbor, um, right off of Griffin's Wharf. And so when the Sons of Liberty threw the chests of tea overboard, they had to do a couple of things. So number one, these chests were very, very heavy. Some weighed as much as 300 to 400 pounds. So they were hoisted up using block and tackle, swung over to the rails or sides of the ships. Then they were broken open with axes and hatchets. And then the loose leaf tea was dumped out of the chest. And then the chest itself was thrown into the harbor for good measure. Now, all those uh, loose leaf tea leaves actually piled up. There was so much tea, uh, 92,000 pounds in weight approximately was destroyed during the Boston Tea Party. There was so much tea, there were mountains of tea that were piling up, sitting in the mud and the muck all the way up to the rails of the vessels. So the 100 to 150 individuals made a decision, send the young apprentices over the side to smash the loose leaf tea uh, back down into the mud and into the muck. And so uh, I would say that there was some water there, uh, but most of it was mud. That's fantastic information. <laughs> That's great. I'm always I'm always fascinated by the governor um, Hutchinson. You know, I know he's criticized a lot. Uh, I was just reading today before uh, we signed on about 
you know, he was he wanted his counsel to kind of authorize military, the, you know, the British Navy or uh, you know, military to step in, but they wouldn't do it. So he felt he kind of took the uh, I don't know what the white word is here, but he said, well, it's out of my hands. I can't I can't sign off on this to, to return. I don't have that authority. I can't order the British Navy in to protect your your cargo or the or the men that come over from Castle William to protect your cargo. So you're kind of on your own. Do you think he did that? Um, because his family was involved? Do you think he did because he thought that was the best political decision for him to make, to kind of put the onus back on, you know, the Sons of Liberty, those who were leading this whole effort? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of both, but I think he, too, tried to do, at least in his mind, the right thing. Um, you know, he received the petitions from Francis Roach. He met with him multiple times. He listened, but he was also in an impossible situation. If he allowed the tea to be sent back to England, he would look weak with his authority, um, and he needed to make sure that that authority was solid. Um, however, if he sent in the troops, well, he would probably have another Boston massacre on his hands. And that was also really important. So if you see anything on TV or any movies or anything like that about British soldiers coming down and attempting to stop the Boston Tea Party, or you know, even, God forbid, Royal Governor Hutchinson himself, on the ships telling the Sons of Liberty to stop throwing the tea. None of that is accurate. There were no British soldiers on Griffin's Wharf that day. Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson was hiding in Milton. That's and great. so um, all of the soldiers were actually over at Castle William, today known as Castle Island. And they were stationed there following the Boston Massacre. And so there was this very real fear that if the, um, the British were to come in and try to stop the proceedings at Griffin's Wharf, they would have another massacre on their hands. However, there was still a threat. There were three British men of war vessels, the Active, the Captain, and the Kingfisher. They were just a stone throw away from Griffin's Wharf. And they saw the entire proceedings that night. And there's even a, a journal entry from Admiral Montague where he claims he could have stopped it at a moment's notice. However, they too did not want that blood on their hands. Right. Um, and so they made the conscious decision to not intervene at the incident on Griffin's Wharf and allow the proceedings to continue. And I think Governor Hutchinson, despite a lot of what he did wrong, also deserves a bit of credit uh, for attempting to not allow things to get out of hand. So the, well, let's take a moment here and we lo let's play the great game of what if, because um, I know we all love working in the public history field or working in museum. We all love when. Uh, people come up and go, well, what if this happened? So for now, I get to ask the question for once. It never so, happens, it's... Phil. It never, <laughs> it never happens. happens. Uh, what if Stonewall Jackson would have lived? What if George All Washington right. would have crossed the Delta? <laughs> um, so just, just two for my experience. But what if they the British would have responded that night? What do you think? Uh, would that have been another Boston Massacre type thing? Or would that have been enough to quell the crowd? Um, if you had to take a guess. I know it's based on very loose historical uh, foundation here. but just yeah. a what if for a few minutes. So it's tough to say. My personal opinion is that this event was so emotional and there was such a buildup to it. You know, this wasn't some sort of off the cuff, you know, just spur of the moment thing. Um, you know, there were thousands of people, you know, again, 5,000 inside Old South Meeting House. The population of Boston at the time was a little over 16,000 people. And so for 5,000 of those people, to be so impassioned and so moved uh, by what was leading up to December 16th, 
I personally think that there was too much emotion involved for things to go smoothly were the British soldiers to intervene. Do I think it would be uh, a horrible bloody massacre? Uh, I hope not, um, but it's, it's impossible for me to believe that nothing would have happened just given the pure emotion of the buildup uh, to that night. Exactly. I mean, you see so many other times where it's like powder alarm or, the, or what happens at Salem and so forth, or like there's, there's close, but there's not that uh, charged atmosphere already to begin with. And, right. um, and that's, I think, what it made truly amazing that nothing, no violence does happen. Uh, so, I mean, to the extent that it could possibly, which is, I think, what, remarkable that night. Yeah, I agree. Um, one thing I was going to bring up as we start getting in from the, the legalities of what's going on into that actual night on the 16th. Uh, I always find it fascinating that inside the, the meeting house there, you have, you know, you have you have Sam Adams, right? You have you have some of the big leaders, but when it comes to what's going on in the wharf later, they're detached from that. And I've always thought that that's a very wise political move on their part. Do you believe that's totally intentional? I, I do. Um, so I think for a multitude of reasons, number one, uh, Samuel Adams was too important to the cause to potentially be arrested down there. So you uh, imagine this was an act of treason. And so anyone who participated in the Boston Tea Party very easily could have been arrested. And they didn't know at the time that the, the, the Redcoats were not gonna intervene. So they were taking a, a sizable risk going down there. Um, now they were disguised to some degree, we can talk about that as well, but that disguise kind of concealed their true identities to some degree, but there was still a great risk um, going down there. And so one of the things that I love most about the Boston Tea Party is you're right, it wasn't Samuel Adams on board. It wasn't John Hancock. It wasn't John Adams. It was what I often call an ordinary citizen doing an extraordinary thing. These were a mix of Boston's population. And it's important to know that it wasn't just Bostonians who took part in the Boston Tea Party. Because of the two week deadline, news got to all the surrounding towns and villages and communities around Boston. And people came to Boston town to find out what was happening, to participate. There were uh, young tradesmen and apprentices who were working in their shops. And when they heard uh, you know, people going down to Griffin's Wharf, they would ask their masters, can I go too? And permission was granted. And so there were people that had plans to go down to Griffin's Wharf to participate in this event. And there were a large amount of people that just got caught up in the emotion of it and swept up and suddenly found themselves knee deep in tea, destroying it and throwing it over the sides of the ships. And so, I love the fact that, you know, the Boston Tea Party participants could have been a merchant, a wallpaperer, a barrel maker, a housewright, a shipwright, a rigger, uh, a rope walker. Um, all of these quote unquote ordinary people did this extraordinary thing and they're more than worthy of our recognition and remembrance for that. Um, and so, you know, when I learned about the American Revolution in history class, you know, all I ever heard about was Sam Adams and John Adams and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and all these famous names. I never really put two and two together until I began to delve more into the Boston Tea Party, that it wasn't those people that took part in the single most important event leading up to the American Revolution. It was someone as common as myself who just felt moved to volunteer, to participate, to be engaged in their community, um, to risk everything to ultimately commit treason in the eyes of the British authority. 
yeah, that's very much involved in their community, right? <laughs> exactly. It's hard to get more involved than everything for it. That's a great volunteer program. Uh, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, as you said, you know, Hancock, Adams, Warren, and others are not there at the wharf. So as the meeting ends and they've gotten the response from the governor, how does that transition into, you know, dozens of people storming? you know, down to Griffin's Wharf? Like, like, do you think there was a signal? Was someone sent out to kind of, were these people gathering someplace else outside the meeting? Were they, so how, how, how did that happen? A combination of everything that you just said, actually. Okay. So um, there was a prearranged plan, we believe. So again, given the deadline, um, and after all of these town meetings, you know, minutes were taken. And it's curious, at the very beginning of the tea crisis, a lot of the minutes will simply say uh, nothing transacted matter of record. Well, you know darn well that something was transacted. They're in their meeting about deciding, you know, whether or not to destroy all of these chests of tea. And yet there is this shroud of secrecy around some of this planning. There's a shroud of secrecy around who might be involved. We know that Samuel Adams was kind of gathering his troops, so to speak. And um, working out various permutations of what will happen. So if the governor uh, sees reason and sends the ships back to England, then X will happen. If we get to this date and there's still no decision, then we will assign uh, you know, guards on Griffin's Wharf to watch over the vessels, to prevent anyone from sneaking on board and taking the tea under the cover of darkness and landing it without our, without our say. Um, so there's that plan. Then there's the plan for if the deadline expires and they have no choice. And if we go back to the final meeting at Old South Meeting House, that meeting of the body of the people, after Francis Roach gives the final news that the governor will not send the vessels back to England with the tea on board, Samuel Adams stands up and says, there is nothing more a meeting can do to save this country. This we believe was some sort of prearranged signal. We believe this because almost instantaneously, after saying that sentence, multiple men stand up inside Faneuil Hall. There's a war whoop supposedly heard from the back and people appear already disguised inside Old South Meeting House and immediately outside. So if you're telling me that these guys suddenly said, well, hey, I'm gonna grab this and put this on my head and put a sock on my head and all of a sudden grab lamp black and soot spontaneously, that doesn't make sense to me. What makes much more sense is that some people had a prearranged plan, that they had meetings leading up to it, and that they knew that if the governor was going to send the ships back to England, or not going to send the ships back to England, they had uh, to enact that plan. We also know that a woman named Sarah Bradley Fulton, uh, a sister of one of, or several of the Boston Tea Party participants, also known as the mother of the Boston Tea Party, it is believed was involved in gathering some disguises for the men, especially her brothers. So there's definitely some sort of planning in place leading up to December 16th. But like I also said, uh, there were a great number of people who just got caught up in the spontaneity of, of their aspect of the event. So what I personally believe is that the gentlemen, the, the men who were part of the prearranged plan once they began to leave Old Sub Meeting House and head down to Griffin's Wharf, that word spread. And as word spread, more and more people came out of their shops and out of their homes. 
either to go down to Griffin's Wharf and watch the proceedings or to jump on board the vessels and take part. So I have to ask you, what were they wearing, right? That's that's always one of the discussion points. There's the million dollar question right there. Right. Were they dressed as Mohawk? (laughs) So I'm sure it's a mix of everything, but so, you know, what do you, how do you all interpret this there in Boston at the museum? Yeah, so it is absolutely true that the Sons of Liberty were disguised to some degree. Um, Now, exactly what those disguises looked like is up for some debate. And it is impossible to say with any certainty exactly what they wore. That's because some of these disguises, the majority of the disguises were makeshift ones. Um, And there were also many people who were not disguised at all. Uh, Specifically, uh, someone like Robert Sessions, who we just placed a commemorative marker at his grave today in Hamden, Massachusetts, would go on to say um, that people like him, the young apprentices who just got caught up, didn't have time to gather a disguise, and yet still would go on board and participate in the tea's destruction. So ultimately, what do we think they wore? Well, what I can tell you with a great deal of certainty is that the majority of them would darken their faces with soot and coal dust. Um, this was largely to obscure you know, their facial features. Um, was it some sort of traditional war paint that you might see in some artistic engravings or artwork? I doubt it. There might have been some ceremonial uh, painting here or there, but I believe largely it was to obscure the facial features. Um, we also know that uh, the vast majority of those disguised wore heavy cloaks or blankets not just to keep warm, because again, it was a freezing cold December night. We had just had 24 hours of rainy weather, but also to disguise their silhouette. So we, in modern sense, might have a huge wardrobe at home, right? I might have five or six different winter coats alone, depending on my mood or what I'm gonna be doing. Uh, The vast majority of the Tea Party participants likely only had one or maybe two coats in their lifetime. Um, and so you would often be recognized uh, on the streets of Boston by your coat um, and what you wore and part of your status. And so if you're trying to go down to Griffin's Wharf and take part in the secretive event, you're not going to wear the same thing you'd wear at a town meeting and be recognized instantaneously. But you also need to keep warm that, in that practical sense. So how do you disguise all of that? Where you wear a heavy blanket, a heavy cloak to disguise that silhouette and hide uh, a feature that might be instantaneously recognizable by your friends. Now, um, most of the artwork that you see, uh, if you were to go on Google right now and type in Boston Tea Party, you'll find probably a hundred images ranging from ones that are sort of accurate to wildly inaccurate and borderline offensive. Um, Honestly, the vast majority of those images are completely wrong. Um, what you'll see is uh, Native American or indigenous headdresses much more closely aligned with the time of westward expansion, um, which is when America began to kind of rekindle this conversation of its own founding, this idea of Americana and patriotism all the way you know, up into the bicentennial. You know, we looked back at this iconic moment in American history with reverence, and we wanted to kind of capture that drama. And so the artists would look at images that they were familiar with. 
And at that time period, you would see much more Plains Native American headdresses. Um, nothing of the sort would have been worn on December 16, 1773, largely because those participants would never have seen headdresses of that style. That is not what the indigenous tribes local to Massachusetts or even New York were likely wearing at the time. So all of that imagery that we think of when we see the Boston Tea Party comes from the 1800s and the 1900s, not from the 1700s. There's also no Boston Tea Party participant first person account that ever mentions the word feathers. Um, and so we don't truly know if feathers were worn by the participants. However, there is a fairly good chance that some feathers were involved, um, largely because the symbol of this Native American had been appropriated by the Sons of Liberty multiple times leading up to the Boston Tea Party. This Native American figure, oftentimes depicted as a woman, came to represent America in what they saw a, a truest form, let's say. And so during things like the Stamp Act riots, the Stamp Act protests, other protests based around British taxation, there were these uh, moments where these disguised men would appear uh, with some feathers in their hair, uh, hooded, cloaked, facial features darkened, and they were seen as this uh, fearsome intimidation, this almost this borderline wild man who would come uh, to talk about or to act out what this, I, this initial idea, this kernel of idea of American liberty, American independence. And it's ironic that the very same people that looked at the Native American tribes at the time as savages would also adopt this image right. to represent their own initial ideas of independence. But it's also important to know that in 1773, the Boston Tea Party was not an event necessarily tied to American independence. That would come later with things like the Coercive Acts and the Intolerable Acts. But the Sons of Liberty, the participants of the Boston Tea Party would utilize this Native American imagery in the Boston Tea Party protest as this initial idea of what it meant to be American and separate from British authority. And so I wish there was a much more simplistic and concrete answer that I can give. But what I can tell you honestly is that yes, they were disguised. No, we don't fully know what the disguises were. And no, not all of them wore a disguise that night in 1773. That's, I do a, believe, that's um, a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. There was rumor on uh, this was on uh, uh, I think Rob started this that one of them was actually wearing a Tom Brady rookie jersey uh, that night. Since, <laughs> I heard uh, that too, as a matter yeah, of fact. There it's uh, <laughs> but now, uh, don't pick on Tom there. So. Great fantasy football pickup, right? That's right. Uh, years was, and years. Um, he was. Little sore subject around here still. <laughs> they might be throwing his jersey into the harbor. And, uh, but now, uh, kind of, uh, so you, you talked about uh, placing the headstone at um, uh, one of the, uh, the guys' graves uh, sessions today. Um, we do know that uh, we don't know the whole roster of people who are there. A lot of them went to the, to the grave uh, with it. Uh, but out of the ones we do know, is there a person that has flown under the radar that since you've worked at the, the museum that is kind of that should be more known, well known, or has an interesting story that uh, the public should be aware of? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's there's a ton. Um, you know, Paul Revere, uh, we do believe was on board the vessels. Obviously, we know his story. We don't have to belabor that point. But 
you know, he's probably the most well-known um, individual uh, who was uh, on Griffin's Wharf that night on the vessels destroying tea. Uh, there are, you know, other names that, you know, people uh, interested in Boston's history, colonial history might recognize. You know, for instance, Thomas Crafts, um, who would eventually go on to read the Declaration of Independence from the balcony of the old state house, so a well-known, you know, last name in colonial Boston. Um, there were other people uh, that might have been involved, like uh, John Rowe, a merchant who was actually owner of the vessel Eleanor. We don't truly know if he was on board uh, the vessels destroying tea that night, uh, but there is a rather conspicuous uh, entry into his journal that evening that he was home feeling unwell and had nothing to do uh, with that night. Uh, and leading up uh, to December 16th, he was writing copious paragraphs uh, about his feelings about the Boston Tea Party or, or the, the, the tea being shipped to Boston. And so some people believe that he might have been uh, on board the vessels destroying tea that night. Uh, there was Francis Akeley, um, who was the only person to be arrested uh, for his involvement in the Boston Tea Party because he was overheard talking about it at the nearby tavern, promptly arrested, but then promptly also released due to lack of evidence. No one would corroborate uh, his involvement. Um, you know, there was Robert Sessions, again, who we saw today, um, who was um, a farmer eventually, but also an apprentice here in Boston, would move to Western Massachusetts and would become a linchpin of his community, uh, elected moderator of his town meetings um, and elected to pretty much every office his community would hold. And I think, you know, without singling more names out, I think that is what is always so refreshing to me and so inspiring to me, that these people, you know, some were as young as, young as 16 years old that took part in the destruction of the tea. And they would then go on to, the majority of them fought in the American Revolution, but even those that didn't would then go on to become founding members of new communities, not just in Massachusetts, not just in New England, but around the expanding nation. Uh, we've already traveled to Ohio and Michigan. We'll even be traveling to Paris, France later this year uh, to honor a Boston Tea Party participant buried there. And these wow. people, you know, they were kind of forged in the crucibles of revolution, right? And so they went and they founded their town charters. They led their town governments. They became active in their communities. And it's on the shoulders of these Boston Tea Party participants that our nation was built. And so, you know, while there are certain names that I would single out, I would also say collectively, they all deserve singling out. They all deserve recognition because they all took a great risk and a great sacrifice. And it's because of that and their involvement in their communities following this event that we have the nation that we have today. That's uh, yeah. The fact that you guys are, are doing that work. I mean, if you need someone to go to Paris, let me know. I'll do the same thing there, Rob. <laughs> my job, <laughs> my, my job doesn't send me to France, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, you kind of talked about this already a little bit about when someone asked about the water and the mud, but uh, I just kind of want to wrap up uh, the story itself before we start talking about some of the great work you guys are doing up there. So they when they get down to the to Griffin's Wharf, which you know is not where the museum is. You can talk about that later. It's some other place. It's 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 somewhat marked um, today. But today, and I know the answer to this, but I kind of want you to kind of expand on it. what did they do? They just dumped the tea, or did they? Did they there's other things on these ships too, right? So um, from everything you read, they're very respectful of the the items on the ships that are not the tea, 
So if you can kind of go into that a little bit about they're down there, how they get on the ships, how they get into the ships. Um, we've already talked about the mud and the water, so you don't have to do that. But talk about the process of getting on these ships and and you know getting into them and dumping the tea into the harbor. Yeah, I actually think that's probably one of the most important points about the Boston Tea Party story to really hit home. You know, the Boston Tea Party is often regarded as America's first peaceful protest. I suppose, you know, the definition of the word peaceful is difficult. Um, you know, <laughs> sure, no one was beaten up that we know of that night. Um, and it was less violent than, let's say, some of the Stamp Act riots. Certainly the governor's mansion on uh, Counting House and all this stuff wasn't torn down brick by brick on December 16th, 1773. But of course, you can argue whether the lead up to the Boston Tea Party could be considered peaceful or not. But what we cannot argue is that the Sons of Liberty took great care to not damage the other cargoes on board the ships. This also goes back to the Navigation Acts um, and also goes back to the watch that the Sons of Liberty put on these vessels. So they were concerned that the consignees might send people under the cover of darkness to remove the tea and land it. And so to prevent that, they put a guard on Griffin's Wharf, keeping watch on the cargo of tea. However, during that two week lead up, um, of all the other cargoes just about were removed from the Dartmouth and the Eleanor. The beaver was a bit different. Uh, the beaver had a suspected case of smallpox on board. So she was held at Rainsford Island, also known as Quarantine Island in Boston Harbor. And she actually did not tie up to Griffin's Wharf until the day before the Boston Tea Party on December 15th. So her hold was filled with cargo in addition to the chests of tea. So um, when the Sons of Liberty went on board, they actually asked permission to go on board the vessels from the crews and the captains. Those, uh, that permission was given. Sure. Um, hey, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Now, I don't think the captains and crews were really going to fight back. You know, they have a, a mob of about 100 to 150 guys who were very intent on destroying the tea. As a matter of fact, one of them actually told one of the captains, it's the tea we want and the tea we shall have. But there was an understanding and an agreement that no other harm would come to the crew or the cargoes on board. And they swore that solemn oath and they held true to that oath. So matter of fact, the only thing that was broken on board those vessels, aside from the chests of tea, was a padlock, um, which the Sons of Liberty broke and then returned the next morning a fresh new lock with a note of apology. Um, it's also important to know, like you said, that there were various other cargoes on board, correspondence, mail, furniture, clothing. But what's also really interesting, on board the vessel Dartmouth, owned by Francis Roach, was the first shipment, the first edition book of poetry by Phyllis Wheatley, an enslaved poet, the first enslaved poet in American history and only third woman in American history to publish a book of poetry. And her books had been sent from London, England to Boston. They were taken off the Dartmouth um, prior to the destruction of the tea, safe and sound and were sold at booksellers Cox and Barry just up the road on, on King Street. Um, and so, yeah, there were many other different types of cargoes uh, on board the vessel. And to your point as well, yeah, uh, our museum is not right at Griffin's Wharf. It's about a hundred yards away from where Griffin's Wharf once stood. That's, that's amazing about Phyllis. We, I did not know that. That's, that's, a, that's a great story that on that ship. <laughs> is that, wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Before we segue out of the tea and to the to the museum, um, I got asked this question. It came in from uh, someone listening in and said that 
is it proven that some of the original tea does exist? Many claims have been discounted due to analysis. So somewhere in the collections at the Boston Tea Party Ship Museum, is there some original tea that you guys have hidden away through the <laughs> centuries? Well, it's not hidden. It's it's available to the public to be seen. Um, right. So we have we have two or three tea related things. So the first would be the Robinson Tea Chest, which is the only known surviving tea chest from the Boston Tea Party and confirmed from the Boston Tea Party. And I can get into that as well. But ultimately, the, the short version is it's been uh, tested. Um, it's been submerged in Boston Harbor salt water, um, traces of tea. Uh, embedded in the wood from its uh, really intense packing um, and all that. So that's probably our piece de la resistance here at the museum. We also have a vial believed to be a Boston Tea Party tea on loan to us from the Old North Church. This one's a bit different from the majority of the other vials of tea that you might find around New England. This one has a combination of the tea leaves and some liquid inside. Uh, we don't have a tremendous amount um, of provenance and story behind that. However, what we were informed uh, is that it was poured out of the boot of a participant when he returned home. A combination of the loose leaf tea and the remnants of the water and the rain uh, from that night. However, to be honest, our vial of tea has never been tested. We have not broken the seal. Um, and so we do say that it's believed to be from the Boston Tea Party. We do know that there are other vials of tea all around uh, Massachusetts, especially, um, and various other museums have them. What you will really want to look for um, is that they are a type of either green tea or black tea and in loose leaf form. So one of the biggest myths about the Boston Tea Party was that the tea involved was in brick form. Mm. And you will even see uh, sample tea bricks at rather reputable historic sites all around the nation that say this very same type of tea was involved in the Boston Tea Party. Unfortunately, that is not true. All of the tea involved in the Boston Tea Party was in loose leaf form. No brick tea was sold, especially in New England at the time, but the American colonists really had no taste for brick tea and that was shipped to other parts of the globe. What was sent to America, especially in the lead up to the Boston Tea Party was all loose leaf tea three black teas, two green teas. And so um, those black teas, especially, uh, you can really kind of tell the difference uh, between black teas and green tea leaves and when they were picked in the spring or later on in the year. And so um, I recommend uh, visiting places like Massachusetts Historical Society, the Old State House, Old South Meeting House, Scottish Rite Museum, all of these great institutions have what is believed to be vials of Boston Tea Party tea but to my knowledge, they've never been broken open and actually forensically tested. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on, lots of questions coming in. So that means this people are really enjoying this talk. So uh, someone even has a possible ancestor that was there. I'll just, I'll send you that person's email address in an email later. So do, yeah. maybe, sure. maybe somebody you guys don't know about, I don't know, we'll see. Um, as far as tea goes, I have to ask, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts tea? <laughs> uh, neither. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Wow, I thought you were going to say Dunkin', right? Come on. <laughs> right. Well, you know, here at the museum, we do serve the five different types of tea. It's right. a story during the Boston Tea Party. So, you know, when I drink tea, it's usually that. Uh, my favorite would actually be Souchong, um, which is a very smoky black tea. 
So, um, you know, there was Buhi and Kanju and Sushong with the three black teas and Singlo and Hyson were the two green teas. Now, uh, all the tea was all from the same plant, even the black teas and green teas, all from the same plant. It just depends on what time of year the leaves were picked. Green tea was picked very early on in the spring before the leaves had a chance to oxidize. The black tea were more oxidized leaves, cook, uh, picked later on uh, in the year. The reason I like Sushong is it's smoked. And so that was part of the preservative nature and how they uh, transported the tea. And I'm told if you're a fan of scotch or whiskey like I am, Sushong is the one to go to. It's kind of like a liquid campfire. It's really, really nice. I wrote that down. This is one of the few talks we've done, Phil, that I'm taking more notes for myself. Than... <laughs> hey, this is great. <laughs> so how much about tea did you know before you worked at the museum? Is this all learned when you got there? I'm pretty sure you probably had to learn all this, right? So most of my, my tea experience has been absorbed with my time here at the museum over right. the 11 years I've been here. But I was a big fan of tea prior to coming here. I've always drunk it. Um, I, I do tend to prefer coffee, but I do drink tea rather regularly. Um, but yeah, a lot of that information has come during my time here at the museum. That, it's a great segue in talking about the museum. Let's spend the last, next 10, 15 minutes before we sign off here to talk about the great museum you work at and some of the things you all do. So if you can kind of just talk about who you all are, what you do, what's a, what's a normal day if, if a visitor were to show up there. What do they get when they come through and then talk about a little bit about what you all have planned, which is a lot. I know you'd be here for three hours doing that, but just some of the highlights um, and we'll share the website to everyone as well in the chat. But if you can go ahead, just talk about the, the museum you work at. Thanks. Yeah. So the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum is really unique. Um, you know, we are part of a landscape of, you know, many, many amazing institutions and a lot of our partners like the work at revolutionary spaces old south meeting house old state house our partners with massachusetts historical society you know they are these incredible foundational members of the museum and historical community here in boston actual historic sites real buildings where those meetings took place and all that we are a little bit different you know we um are not a historic structure. We are in a historic location. Again, only about 100, 150 yards away from where Griffin's Wharf once stood. We're in this very same body of water where the Tea Party took place. But you know, the office that I'm in right now was built in 2011. We are not a historic structure. But what we do is we try to tell the story of the Boston Tea Party through uh, kind of a three-tiered methodology. We use first person historical interpretation and live theatrical performance. We then add in some high tech interactive exhibits and then round everything out with 18th century artifacts directly tied to the Boston Tea Party and the greater time period to fully immerse our guests in the story of the Boston Tea Party. And so it's all told in a first person guided experience. And so when people come to our museum, when you buy a ticket, the first thing you do is you take part in an interactive town meeting, which is very similar to all of those meetings of the body of the people that I spoke about a few minutes ago. You take an active role in the decision to destroy the king's tea. You're even given your own colonial identity, assign the name of a participant of the Boston Tea Party, and you can see the story unfold through the eyes of your colonial character. You're met by a colonial host who's also portraying someone involved in the Boston Tea Party or directly related to somebody who was involved in the event. 
And so you will take part in this active town meeting. We want you to make noise, yell huzzah, boo, fi, hiss, pound on the pews, really play along. Obviously the kids love that interactive nature, but so do adults. And what we have found is if we encourage our guests to play, to kind of cast off their museum inhibitions, let down their guard and enjoy themselves, while they retain the information so much more easily and they take an active role in their own education. So once the town meeting is complete, you will storm down to Griffin's Wharf and you will go on board one of our two vessels. Now, the original Boston Tea Party ship sadly no longer exists, but two of our vessels are faithful replicas and recreations of the original ships. Both the Brig Beaver and the vessel Eleanor have been remade from the keel up to really you know, recreate the vessels that were involved in the Boston Tea Party. We do not have the Dartmouth yet. Hopefully that will change somewhere down the line. The Brig Beaver is the same vessel that was involved in the bicentennial of the Boston Tea Party uh, that awesome. sailed across the Atlantic to be here. However, she's been completely rebuilt and refit over the years. Uh, after you'd, of course, destroy the, the King's Tea in Boston Harbor, you will get to throw a chest of tea into Boston Harbor during your time with us. Then you go inside and learn about how this 18th century story is told utilizing 21st century technology. We've got holograms, talking portraits, just like in Harry Potter, um, you will see artifacts like the Robinson Tea Chest, the only known surviving chest from the Boston Tea Party. You'll learn about the Tea Party's aftermath, the passage of the Coercive Acts, the Intolerable Acts, and learn how the tea's destruction then led to the shot heard around the world, the battles of Lexington and Concord, which were fired only 16 months after the tea hit the water. And you really learn how this, this event was inexplicably tied to the formative years of our region and our nation. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what our museum experience is, but it's all again told through the eyes of the person who is your guide. And so if you come to our museum three, four, five times, you will likely have a new colonial guide each time. And our interpreters are educated on everything leading up to the Boston Tea Party, what took place during the event and what its lasting legacy is today. And every single tour is a unique experience, both for our historical interpreters and for our customers. And it's what makes us really different, I think, in the museum landscape here in Boston. No, it's, it's great. I've been through it once. And now I know I have to go back many times to get all these different viewpoints. <laughs> um, so I know you all are partnering with a lot of different uh, organizations there in Boston for the 250th Tea Party. So kind of hit some of the highlights some of the things you all have planned. If people want to come to Boston uh, either this summer, fall, obviously fall is great in Boston, or in, on the actual cold day in December like Phil and I will be doing, you know, what would you recommend people check out and some of the things you think are probably ones that people really want to see? Absolutely. So as you just said, we are gearing up for the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, December 16th, 2023. We're a little under six months away. I can't believe it. Um, and so we have been working on an entire commemorative year. There's been some events, you know, prior to today's conversation, and there will be events all leading up to December 16th. And I really want to stress that this commemorative year, you know, sure, the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum is, you know, intimately involved in a lot of these, but it is not just about our organization. Um, you know, this uh, advisory committee and all these advisory organizations all working together. There's some two dozen different organizations across three different sectors, hospitality, travel and tourism, the historical community, all of that are all working together 
to really um, put Boston on the map, New England on the map, and really celebrate this important chapter of our nation's history and do it right, both in an accessible way and an accurate way, and in a way that will really entertain and educate anyone who comes to Boston. So first and foremost, I encourage you, come to town, come to Boston. It doesn't matter when, obviously we wanna see you in December, but there's gonna be events all leading up to that great night. So kind of rapid fire, I'll fill you with some of our programming and then some other additional programming that's coming up. So I know that there's at least one descendant of a Boston Tea Party participant watching here today. Thank you so much. Uh, we have just partnered with the New England Historical Genealogical Society and American Ancestors to create the Boston Tea Party Descendants Program, which is a new lineage society um, encouraging descendants like yourself to join, to share information, to meet each other, and to help build an online portal of information all dedicated to the participants in the Boston Tea Party. And that was launched last March and it will be a program of ours in perpetuity. And with membership, there's newsletters and special events. Um, and of course, we want descendants to come to Boston on December 16th and be involved in uh, the grand scale reenactment that we're gonna be doing that night. So that's great. Uh, we are also gonna be highlighting uh, the story of Phyllis Wheatley, her connection to the Boston Tea Party. If you're in town on July 6th and 7th, we will be hosting a special theatrical performance called A Revolutionary Encounter in London, a play about Phyllis Wheatley's visit to London and her book of poetry, uh, directed and written by Deborah Wise. Uh, that'll be 7 p.m. here at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. Um, if you have visited our website, bostonteaparty250.org, or gone on any of our social media channels, you've seen that we've been traveling all around the nation, placing commemorative markers at the headstones of known Boston Tea Party participants. Um, we have done just about every community except for one or two in Massachusetts. All the other remaining New England states have been accounted for. We've traveled to Michigan and Ohio, but we are about to go to New York. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be driving from Boston all the way out to Buffalo and visiting about 11 different communities across that great state. Um, and that's gonna be a lot of fun. All those dates and all those events are at bostonteaparty250.org. We'll also be traveling to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania a little bit later on this year as well. If you happen to find yourself again in Paris, uh, you can join us in the tail end of September. Uh, we'll also be traveling to London and partnering with the East India Company. Yes, they still exist. They are much smaller now, uh, a little bit nicer too. Uh, and so they will be uh, donating 250 pounds of tea uh, for the grand scale reenactment, which I'll talk more about in a few minutes. Um, also, if you're in Boston around the 4th of July, Boston's Harbor Fest, its world famous 4th of July celebrations are all going to be themed the Boston Tea Party this year in honor of the 250th anniversary. We will be participating in a grand opening ceremony on June 30th this year. Uh, there's gonna be a large Boston Tea Party cake that'll be cut. Uh, we have a themed trolley in partnership with Old Town Trolley of Boston, traveling around the city, building awareness of the 250th anniversary. And if you're local to Massachusetts, uh, that trolley might be visiting a community near you because what we are hoping for is for all of you watching at home today, um, students, adults alike, anyone around the world that wants to send us loose leaf tea, mail it to the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. 
We will place it into the tea chest that we'll be using during the grand scale reenactment. And we will throw your tea into Boston Harbor at the same That's location cool. where the tea party occurred 250 years ago. If you send it to us, you have my word that you will receive a certificate of participation proving that your tea was involved in the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. This is a great opportunity for school kids across the country and around the world to participate. If you're not able to come to Boston in December, this is still a way for you to be involved in this you know, really important reenactment and anniversary uh, in our nation's history. So in addition to all of that, uh, we will be traveling to various historic sites around New England, uh, all leading up to December 16th. A lot of our partner organizations like Revolutionary Spaces are doing tremendous work. And I encourage you, when you come to Boston, visit the Old South Meeting House, visit the Old State House, go to Faneuil Hall, check out the Massachusetts Historical Society, and also go outside the confines of Boston. Go to places like the Shirley Eustis House, um, the uh, Hutchinson Field in Milton, where Hutchinson's mansion was, where he was cowering, uh, waiting for Francis Roach to arrive, uh, to have those meetings with him to determine the fate of the tea. All of these, and a lot of these buildings anyway, still exist, and they need your patronage, and they need uh, to shine in their own right during this really important anniversary year. So I would encourage you to come to Boston. Definitely check out bostonteaparty250.org. We're gonna to continue to load up special events gearing up to December 16th. But I would be remiss not to talk about what will be happening that night. So that night, about a decade's worth of work will culminate <laughs> in a grand scale reenactment of the Boston Tea Party in partnership with Revolutionary Spaces, our, our main partner for that night, and also Revolution 250, a consortium of several dozen different organizations all working together. Actually, I think it's more like 70 different organizations all working together to really highlight these 250th anniversaries coming up. And the Boston Tea Party is the big kickoff to all of the 250th anniversaries forthcoming. And so that night, December 16th, 2023, there will be presentations all across the city in partnership with the city of Boston. Um, we will be doing a recreation of the beginning of the meetings of the body of the people at Faneuil Hall that evening, uh, probably around four o'clock, 4.30, somewhere around there. Um, those proceedings will uh, end just before Francis Roach is sent to meet with Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson. We will then pass the torch to our colleagues at Revolutionary Spaces who will do the recreation of the final meeting of the body of the people at Old South Meeting House. And both these events are gonna be filled with drama and intrigue and passion um, and really something to, to behold. Once the meeting inside Old South Meeting House is concluded, there will be a rolling rally, a parade of many thousands of people from downtown crossing and Old South Meeting House down to the waterfront, where in days preceding, we will have moved the vessel Eleanor uh, adjacent or a beam to the Brig Beaver. And for the first time ever, we will throw tea from both of our ships. Any of you who have come to previous reenactments know that we've only used the Brig Beaver up until this year, uh, but we'll be throwing tea from both of those vessels. We're expecting many thousands of people, hoping for many thousands of people to come to Massachusetts and come to Boston that night. We will be hoisting real wooden chests of tea 
faithfully recreated to resemble those involved in the historic event. Um, they will be broken open by axes. The loose leaf tea that you will send us, in addition to 250 pounds of tea donated by the East India Company, will go overboard. Don't worry, the tea itself is biodegradable. Um, and all of the wooden chests and all of the other things that go in the harbor will be retrieved at the end of the evening. But this event is going to be uh, something, you know, the only term I can use is grand scale, something mm -hmm. the likes of which we've not seen since the bicentennial and something that Boston and New England and the nation can really be proud of. And my advice would be come to Boston, um, learn what makes Boston special, visit all these historic sites and take part in something that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I have, I have no doubt you'll get people. Um, you, you at least have 10 people that from me and Phil know that are coming. So you have us for Seven. sure, but I know there's a lot more people just, we've already booked our, our hotel room and you can always tell, you can already tell the hotel rooms are starting to, uh, to fill up. They I was going to make, I was going to make a side joke here. If the East India company had just donated the tea originally, 250 years ago, we wouldn't even be here right now. With this exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're sending us expired tea, just like they did in 1773, too. So it's accurate. I, I mean, I've been looking at your website for a while, just trying to plan out, because uh, I have friends in Boston trying to plan what we're doing. Um, but I just want to say, you know, I know I know it's more than you. I know it's more than your museum. But you guys are setting the bar really high for everybody else that comes after you with this anniversary commemoration. So kudos to you guys, kudos to everyone in Boston for, I mean, I, you know, I, our local 250th committee here has 20 different organizations. It's a lot of work, 70, I can't even imagine. Um, so, and you know, you guys are setting the bar probably a little too high for the rest of us, but that's fine. I like the challenge. Phil, you have anything else before we uh, let Evan, uh, he's had a long day marking graves, so I don't want to keep yeah. him too much longer. <laughs> Um, anything no, else, I, Phil? I mean, yes, but I think uh, for this time, we'll I'll wait till December to be in person. So, no, yeah, um, we got a lot more questions, and you know, we'll <laughs> uh, maybe do another one down the road. But, um, thank you, Evan, for, for joining us tonight. Again, this has been fascinating, lots of discussion in our chat. Um, for everyone watching, I did put the Tea Party Museum link on there and the Boston 250th link, so you can get all that information that Evan's been talking about. Um, in two weeks, we'll be uh, me. I'll be back on our next reverie, July 9th, and we'll be talking to uh, Jim Bish, who's an author who is here locally in Virginia. He has a new book about Parson Weems, so we're going to shift from Boston back to Virginia, but. Uh, Jim has a new take on Parson Weems, who is a biographer of George Washington. A lot of the myths of George Washington come from the Parson Weems book. He has a new book about Parson Weems and a new take on some of those myths. So please join us in two more weeks, uh, July 9th at 7 o'clock right here on the Emerging Revolutionary War. Evan, thanks again for everything, and I will send you that email of that descendant and get the information to you. And thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll hope to see you in two weeks. And if not, see you in Boston in a few weeks. Thank you so much, everyone. Yeah.